Romans chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as, as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the time that we have together now to see what these things that you inspired your apostle Paul to write all those years ago. But we trust by today you continue to speak by your spirit through your word. And so help us to hear what this says to us in our lives as we seek to follow Jesus here in London today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a bit of a, a music trivia question for you to begin with. Music, I'm going to show you a clip on the screen. It's about a minute long. It's an orchestral piece. Okay, you've just got to, you've got, you've got to see if anyone recognises what this piece of music is. So who wrote it? What is the music? I know it won't be everyone's cup of tea, but I'm sure there may be at least one person who could recognise this. So let's see if we can, we can do that. Here we go. 
Okay. Anyone want to have a go? Anyone at all? Who's, who's got it? Yeah, go, yeah. Yeah, Arnold. Yes, bang on. Well done, Arnold. It is. It is Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, the Patatique. It premiered uh, nine days before Tchaikovsky died. Uh, it is one of the most emotionally charged pieces of classical music. Um, and the, the, the general pattern in a symphony, if you're into the, these things, is what, what normally happens is you get a slow third movement in the symphony, and then you get a sort of upbeat, fast, uh, happy fourth movement to round it all off. Um, but one of the things that's distinctive about this symphony, there's a lot of distinctive things, but one of the distinctive things about this one is that Tchaikovsky swaps those around. And so what we heard then in the clip was we heard the last 30 seconds of a kind of triumphant, upbeat third movement. And, you know, I see everything through the lens of a trombone player, and that is a kind of peak trombone orchestral moment. That, in fact, that whole third movement is absolutely fantastic. But it's so triumphant that, you know, if you hear in the clip, people start to clap in the audience. You're not supposed to clap between movements in symphonies, although that seems to be changing these days, but you're not supposed to clap. But they start to clap, and then did you see the conductor kind of goes, no, 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 we're, we're, we're moving on straight away. And did you hear then, at the beginning of the fourth movement, the tone completely changes. And he goes into this tragic, slow, fourth and final movement to this symphony. And actually, the symphony then ends about 15 minutes later, not in triumph, but with a kind of deep bass heartbeat that ebbs away slowly into nothing. Nine days later, Tchaikovsky was dead after the premiere. You can tell what, you know, what people have, have assumed was going on with this piece of music. But if you wanted a soundtrack for this moment in the book of Romans, this letter to the Romans that Paul wrote, that transition that we just heard between happy movement number three to tragic movement number four, that transition is a soundtrack for this moment between chapter eight and chapter nine in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter eight, we studied, I think, last year. Uh, many people say it's their favorite chapter of the Bible. It's the high point of the Christian life. And, uh, you know, we can look back, you can see on page 1134, if you've got it, it's helpful to have it in front of you. Page 1134, um, it begins, chapter 8 began, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we've, had, we've, been, we've heard about our sin in the book of Romans, but no, if you're trusting in Jesus, there is no condemnation. And then he spells that out and shows all kinds of implications through chapter 8. And he gets to the end of chapter 8, and he says... Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And, and at that point, we all want to stand up and applaud like the audience in the symphony. But Paul, the conductor, is moving straight on. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, he says, as he moves straight on into chapter 9. And so we come crashing back down to earth. 
Now, spoiler alert, the book of Romans does not end like Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony in a kind of downward spiral into oblivion. Uh, by the end of chapter 11, even, we, we are back up into the heights of joy and celebration. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and so on, and to him be the glory forever. But there is, at this moment in chapter 9, this massive change of mood, a temporary moment of anguish. There will be a kind of resolution, but as we get into this, I want to, to get us to feel that change of mood. So why then, Paul, why do you have this great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Because he says, verse 3, chapter 9, we're about over the page now on 1136, because although he's just been celebrating all that is true for those who are in Christ Jesus, even as he does that, he thinks of his own race, he says, the people of Israel, the Jews. And he thinks of how, unlike him, a Jew, so many have not turned to trust in Jesus the Messiah. And he says he wishes that he himself were cursed and cut off from Christ on their behalf. But instead he knows that anyone who won't trust in Jesus the promised Messiah is cut off from him. And the sadness for him is compounded by thinking what his Jewish brothers and sisters have. He says theirs is the adoption to sonship. In other words, that God has adopted Israel as his treasured possession. The divine glory in the temple, the covenants with Abraham, Moses and so on, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and then slightly differently, not theirs but from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. What a stunning statement about Jesus. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who is also God, and yet he is not theirs if they won't trust him. That's what he's saying. And so that is the source of this sudden, dramatic change of tone. When he sees how much he has in Christ, he rejoices, but he's thinking he is pained by what his brothers and sisters are missing out on. If only. And so if you're following on the, on the handout, on the back of the handout, you can see, and on the screen as well, this is summed up in that, that, that first statement. Nothing matters more than membership of God's people, verses 1 to 5. Nothing matters more. Without Christ, we are lost, and nothing matters more. And that pain is still there today. Perhaps, perhaps you've, you, you've had the experience of speaking to a, a Jewish friend or, or even family member and, and, and realizing, well, there's so much we have in common. A, a knowledge of Abraham and Moses and so on, the entire Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And yet the most important thing, the most important person is missing. The Jewish Jesus himself. And that is a source of pain, isn't it? Uh, 2,000 years on, we are perhaps in a place of even greater anguish. You know, today to be a Jewish believer in Jesus sometimes involves a kind of shunning by the wider family. So those of us who were at the prayer meeting on Wednesday heard from our mission partners, Stephen and Deborah Pasht, who are Jewish believers in Jesus, working to reach Jewish people in Geneva. And uh, we heard Deborah talking about, or, 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 or a report of what Deborah had been saying about what her, how her cousins, her Jewish cousins, had received 
her coming to faith in Jesus and they had essentially cut themselves off from her and her family. But more recently, she was rejoicing that there had been an opportunity to renew some of those relationships. These, the, the pain and the anguish is, is very real. And that's before we think about you know, very specific real issues right now that we can think of in, in Israel and Gaza, of course, and, and all that, that, that goes into thinking about that situation. Of course, these, this is not, what we're looking at here is not really about that contemporary situation in the Middle East, although we know that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that the Gospel, the, Rome, the, book, the Romans, the whole Bible points to, in the end can only be where lasting peace is found. But as we look at what we're looking at here, that the pain in the midst of joy is real and still today. And of course, actually, there are other analogous situations as well that we will be aware of, so which are like this situation that gives Paul anguish here with his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters. So like when, when someone grows up in a Christian home and sort of goes to church and in, and in one sense is spiritually privileged in the way that Paul underlines the privilege of his Jewish brothers and sisters here. They've been to church, they've been to youth group, maybe they've been to summer camps, but they don't believe in Jesus. What a tragedy, Paul is saying, about all these situations. And all the other things like physical health and having a good job and falling in love and all the things we might long for ourselves and our loved ones. Paul is reminding us nothing matters more than membership of God's people. There is no greater sadness when someone misses out. So what then do we do with that? That is the big question of Romans 9 to 11. Has God's word, his plan, his promise failed? Because, you see, Jesus has come in fulfillment of all that God promised. But many that you would expect to trust him, with Jesus having done that, have not trusted him. So what is going on? And the answer, as we'll begin to see now and, and continue in the next few weeks, is no. God's plan has not failed, and we're going to see why. And we're going to see three initial reasons why in these verses. So first of all, membership of God's people can't be inherited, verses 6 to 9. Membership of God's people can't be inherited. With each of these three reasons that Paul gives in, in verses 6 to 18, there's an Old Testament story to go with it, an Old Testament reference. So here we start with Israel, who remember is Jacob, the son of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Um, and Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. It's where the name Israel comes from. So he, he, he's saying, uh, not all who are descended from Israel or, or Jacob are Israel, the people of God, nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children? So you see what, you see what he's saying? What he's saying is membership of God's people is not automatically, unfailingly inherited just by virtue of birth. And Paul is saying it's like that now with my Jewish brothers and sisters that he's feeling the anguish about, but this is, this is one of the, the reasons why what is happening but he's saying it's always been like that. That's the point. All the way back to Abraham. Nothing's changed, he's saying. So he quotes the promise to Abraham, verse 7. It is through Isaac 
that your offspring will be reckoned. And the point is that Abraham actually had another son, Ishmael, who was born before Isaac. But God made it clear Ishmael was not the son of the promise. It wasn't an automatic, unfailing thing by, being, by virtue of being born into the family. Verse 8, it is children of the promise, not children of physical descent. Verse 9, can you see, it takes a miracle. That's the significance of that quote there from what God says to Abraham about Sarah, his aged, barren wife, having a son. So can you see, that is the first part of the response. Just being born a Jewish person, or, or, or we might say as well by analogy, just growing up in a Christian home or a Christian church, that in itself isn't enough. <clears throat> there is no automatic, unfailing inheritance. And the point is, that is <clears throat> not some kind of new thing. This is not a plan B <clears throat> for uh, God, as if he used to do things differently. It's always been like this. It was like that under the Old Covenant, and it's like that in the New Covenant, where Jew and Gentile together are welcomed when they put their faith in Jesus. But it is faith in Jesus that matters, not inheritance. And then he continues <clears throat> from verses 10 to 13. Membership of God's people can't be merited. So it can't be inherited, now it can't be merited, deserved, verses 10 to 13. And in one sense, this is doubling down, <coughs> excuse me, this is doubling down on the illustration that he's already given. So one response to the Isaac and Ishmael story might be, well, yes, but Ishmael's mother was Hagar, and, and Hagar was an Egyptian slave. So of course the promise didn't continue through Ishmael. So now, Paul is making the point even more clearly. Think about the twins in Rebekah's womb, he says. Esau and Jacob. Nothing to separate them, same parents. Yet, verse 11, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, he says, God had chosen Jacob and not Esau. And perhaps this catches us by surprise, because we'd expect, and we'd probably prefer it, in some ways, if Paul kept it all about kind of human response of faith. You know, the, the, the reason Ishmael and Esau and many Jewish people since and many people today are not believing in Jesus is just, oh, they haven't put their faith in Jesus, and that's all there is to say. But no, Paul, Paul makes it clear there is more to say than that about God's purpose in election. So this is, this is the kind of, this is the Christian P word, isn't it? You know, the Christian P word is predestination. You know, and, and, and sometimes we, we are ashamed of this. We, we, we think it's a problem. But remember, back in Romans 8, we saw Paul celebrating the idea that God has chosen his people before the beginning of time to celebrate that as a blessing to give thanks for because of the security it brings to God's people. Not, it's not a problem to, that you sort of need to explain away. And we'll get into why that is, but at this point we need to see what, what, what Paul is emphasising here. He's saying membership of God's people can't be inherited and it can't be merited. He says, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, so that, verse 12, it might not be by works but by him who calls. 
And before that, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. And it's quoting from Malachi, this quote, <clears throat> Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, quote from Malachi. And, and we hear that today, and, we, and, you know, alarm bells going off all over the place, and we hear a, a phrase like that, what on earth's going on here, we think. And it's, it's worth remembering that in the sort of Semitic way of talking, hate is a way of saying not love or love less. Uh, but actually, still, if you go back and look at, the, of, at where um, that is said in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, it's pretty strong what God is saying, what, what, what God is saying here through Paul. There was a choice made by God that involved the younger son Jacob being blessed and the older son Esau not being chosen. And it's pretty clear there are devastating consequences for Esau and ultimately judgment. Judgment that he, through his actions in his life, certainly deserves. But nevertheless, there is this choice that goes on. And so as we read this, Paul is really turning the tension up to 11 you know, we might say, because think of how we often try to explain this and, and sort of explain it away. You know, we want to say things like, oh, well, you know, just look, God gives people free will. He never forces anything. But actually, no, Paul is, is making it really clear. God makes a clear choice. And we say, oh, no, but it's because he knew the choices they were going to make. So it's not so much choosing as sort of foreseeing but no, you see, Paul is explicitly ruling that out. Before they've done anything good or bad, he has chosen. See, choosing them on the basis of what they would turn out to do would be a kind of salvation by works, by the back door. That is Paul's point. And, you know, in our world today, we want to say everything should be about merit, don't we? And, and this is hard to hear. The vicar of the church where I, where I was a student uh, recognised that people found it hard to hear this sort of teaching, that, you know, and, they, and they just wouldn't take it on board when they heard it. And so he would say things like this. He would say, you know, while he was preaching a message like this, he would say, you know, some of you listening to this will still think that you know, God, in the end, cares about whether you've been good enough and done enough good deeds and been a good enough person in your life. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the opposite of that. It's not about merit. And still people he would say, didn't hear what was being said. Have we got that? It, it, Paul is saying membership of God's people can't be merited. And not just today when we hear that, but back then as well if we look, a, a kind of obvious response that people will say and people still do say is, well, how can that be fair? for God to choose one and not another. Is God then unjust? And if you look, have a look at what follows. Verse 14, Paul knows exactly that that is what might follow as he outlines his argument, because that's the point he addresses next. And so we see the third, and for this morning, the final thing that we need to see here. Membership of God's people depends entirely on God's mercy. So let's just, let's just take a moment and remember the argument so far, okay? We start with the contrast between the high point of celebrating all that is true for, trusting, for those trusting in Jesus, end of Romans 8, 
Then the sad reality that, that many don't, beginning of Romans 9, question, has God's plan failed? Answer, no, because we need to understand how membership in his people works and how it's always worked. It's never been about automatic inheritance. It's never been about merit. It's always been about his mercy. And that is where Paul lands, as we will see before we finish. So is God unjust, verse 14? Not at all. For, verse 15, can you see, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So could you see what Paul is saying? The reason some believe and some don't is because it doesn't depend on human desire or effort or indeed inheritance, as he's already shown. It depends entirely, the whole thing from beginning to end is about the mercy of God. And in this third quote from the Old Testament, Paul then turns to Moses, verse 15, with that quote. It's a quote from what God says to Moses after God's people have proven themselves to be utterly unfaithful. So you know in the, in, in the book of Exodus, what's happened, God has, has just delivered the law to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. We were studying the Ten Commandments last term. That, that is what was happening then. It's chap, that was chapter 20. But what happens after that in the book of Exodus is we find out what's been happening meanwhile down at the bottom of the mountain. And what have God's people been doing, egged on by Aaron at the bottom of the mountain, worshipping a golden calf? And so, you know, it's a disaster. At the very point where God is drawing near to his people and showing them what it's going to look like to live in intimate relationship with him, they are busy worshipping other gods and being unfaithful to him. And so God is going to act in judgment, he says. And God says to Moses at that point, whoever has sinned against me, which is the entire people of Israel, I will blot out of my book, he says. He says he will punish them for their sin. It is what they and it's what we deserve. And we remember that each week, don't we? When we confess our sins as we did this morning. And we should remember that you know, daily as individuals. What we deserve from God is, as he puts it in Exodus, to be written out of his book because we turned our backs on the God who made us and loves us. But it's in that context that God then says to Moses in chapter 33, I'm going to pass in front of you and proclaim my name to you. And then this quote here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so do you see the point, having heard the background to that quote, the point that we're supposed to get from this, the right response is meant to be, wow, that's amazing. Isn't it extraordinary that God will have mercy on anyone, anyone at all, given how his people have treated him. And so do you see, in our, in our rush to say, you know, how unfair it is that God might choose some and not others, we may be forgetting this. You see, the shock is not that God chooses some and not others. The shock is that he chooses any at all, that he has mercy on any at all. That is the shock and the surprise. 
You see, we very often operate with a, a, a view of God that imagines that he is there just purely in order to serve us and our needs. So it's a kind of you know, benevolent, omnipotent butler. You know, do you remember, do you know Jeeves and Worcester? The, the P.G. Woodhouse, that was the, the, the TV series in the sort of 90s with uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And uh, Stephen Fry there on the left is playing Jeeves, Hugh Laurie playing Worcester. Um, and uh, Jeeves is the butler. And, and Worcester, if you don't know, is basically a kind of wealthy young fool who, who relies on Jeeves to rescue him from all kinds of um, little uh, problems that he's got himself into. And Jeeves is the kind of omnipotent one. You know, he's the problem solver. But what is very clear, and is part of the drama of the whole thing and the comedy of it, is that Worcester is still very much in charge. And Paul is saying, that is not the kind of God that God is. We're not at the centre with him kind of working hard around the edges to serve us and our needs. It's the other way round. He's at the centre. And you can see that in verse 17 in the final Old Testament quote from these verses, which is what God says to Pharaoh earlier in Exodus. We looked at this last year as well. So verse 17 um, our scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So what's going on when God chooses some and not others? What's going on when he rescues his people but hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, what's going on behind that is his purpose is to display his power and proclaim his name. This is the final reason, the deepest reason, the Bible gives for why God does what he does in the way that he does it. It is for his glory, to display his glory. You see, the world revolves around him, not around us. We need to do what, you know, what, what's often called that, that Copernican revolution. We're not at the centre, it turns out God is at the centre. And the thing that we need to get our heads around, and much of, of what is going on in Romans 9 to 11, is to demonstrate to us that is a good thing when God is at the centre and we're not. That is a good thing, not a bad thing. And uh, the second half of this chapter, which we'll look at next week, gets into this further. You can see the next question Paul asks, verse 19. Well, you know, if, if all this is the case and God chooses some and not others, why does God still blame us? How can he hold us responsible? If he's in control and he gets to choose, that's the next question. It's the obvious question. It might be your question. Come back next week if that is your question. And we will see how Paul shows why it is such good news that God acts first for his own glory and not ours. But that means as we finish, this calls us to humility. We had joy at the end of chapter 8. We had sorrow at the beginning of chapter 9. The way back to joy at the end of chapter 11 involves that Copernican revolution that says, at the centre of everything, at the centre of the universe, at the centre of my life, is not me and my needs, but God. He's not my butler. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe who is getting his plan done for his glory 
And the extraordinary thing is not that he chooses some and not others, but that he chooses anyone at all and that he has mercy despite our sin. Even mercy on me, even mercy on you if you're trusting in Jesus. That gives us humility about ourselves. It also gives us humility about others, particularly when we're praying and we're longing for non-Christian friends or family or colleagues to come to know Jesus. It's important to say this choosing that God does is something in the end that only he knows. So in particular, if someone is not trusting Jesus today, it's not for us to say, oh, that means God has definitely not chosen them. We, we don't know that. It's really important that we understand that. And more than that, no one who in the end finally rejects God will be doing so kind of against their will. You know, there is a sense of mystery here, but the Bible is clear. We will, and we want, in other words, as God has willed that we will will. What we want is what we genuinely want, when we, we are therefore responsible for our actions. But the Bible says that is simultaneously true with the fact that God is in charge of everything, including us and what we do and say. And so if in the end someone persists in saying, no, I don't want Jesus, it won't be because really deep down inside them, they would love to have put their trust in Jesus. If you ask them and say, no, I don't want to trust in Jesus. That's why I'm not trusting in Jesus. And so there is still that sense of <clears throat> being responsible and therefore rightly being judged. But particularly for Christians today, it's very important that we don't therefore write people off and think, oh, well, that means they haven't been chosen or, 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 or that kind of thing. But more that we put our trust in the sovereign God who is in charge, who we can trust and therefore we can pray to and rely on with all of these hard questions that we don't always understand because he's at the centre. We're not at the centre, he's at the centre. And so we can trust him to get his plan done. And ultimately, we can trust that he is good. And that's what Romans 9 to 11, as we go through it, is seeking to, to prove and to demonstrate and to give us the confidence. Even when we don't understand everything, we can put our trust in this God whose plan is good and who is good and loving. Nothing matters more than membership of God's people, but he's in charge so we can trust him. So let's keep encouraging each other to do that. Let's pray now. Father, these things are deep. And it can take us time to hear and for it to sink in what you are saying about Jesus and about ourselves. Help us to listen hard, to keep listening to you, and to do that because we trust that you are good. You sent your son to die for us, and so even when we don't understand everything, we know that you are good, and all that you do is good. Thank you at the beginning of this new year that we can put our trust in you and know that 
we are in your hands. Help us maybe even for the first time to put our trust in Jesus as you invite us to do. And to know that we are therefore safe. And indeed, chosen and secure because of your mercy from beginning to end. Thank you that it never depends on anything that we have to contribute because if it came down to that, we would not be secure at all. Thank you that we can simply know that we are safe in your hands when we trust in Jesus. And help us to encourage each other with these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.